You're tuned in to Talking Respect with Hannah Banani. This is episode 14, bringing my city fairs back to life with award-winning architect Aziza Shoni. Aziza is an inspiring architect and professor at the University of Toronto. She embarked on her journey to Morocco to lead major project developments which represent her core values incorporating eco-friendly designs. In 2014, Aziza featured on TED Talks for her incredible works on the first rehabilitation program in her hometown in Morocco. In this podcast, Aziza shares with us her incredible journey from Morocco to New York, where she gained her studies from the University of Columbia and Harvard. Despite leaving her home to build her future, she returned years later to create, design and invest time making an impact in her hometown, Fez. She speaks about the major projects that she worked on and the number of difficulties that she had to overcome to practice architecture in Morocco. This episode is filled with history, culture and dreams that come to life after immense perseverance. Aziza is also the author of a number of books such as Out of Water Design Solutions for Arid Regions. Thank you so much for coming on Aziza. If you could just start please by sharing with us how you started out in Canada and how you built your experience there. Sure, sure. Um, thank you so much for, for having me today. I mean, I really want to tell you that I'm super excited to be part of this uh, podcast. And it's a fantastic idea that you had to gather. Um, uh, I, I wouldn't want to say personalities. I would rather individuals with uh, very different uh, experiences and, and talents. So thank you really for the invitation. So, well, where do I start? I think I need to go back to my childhood in, in Fez um, where I'm right now. Uh, and so I was born and raised in Fez and I, um, in a sense was lucky to have an uncle who lived in New York city and who convinced my parents that I should come and study in, uh, the U S and, and my parents could not speak English. I mean, they were kind of worried that this was very far away, but my uncle uh, convinced them. Uh, and you know, like at the time, I applied to one university that was right by my ankle. It was the closest to my ankle's home, and it happened to be uh, Columbia University. You know, like at the time, I knew nothing of American universities. I was just lucky that uh, with his direction, I picked Columbia. So you can imagine, I applied to one school, and I got accepted to one school. So it was like a one-hit <laughs> thing. And, and uh, such, such an amazing experience to move from Fez uh, to New York City, I mean, to Manhattan, uh, so from New York, I studied civil engineering and environmental engineering, uh, but truly I wanted to study architecture. But my father told me, if you go to the United States, you can only become an engineer. Uh, architecture is not super serious. And so I did listen to him. <laughs> I was a good child, uh, you know, and I was not uh, rebellious whatsoever, but I picked the engineering that could help me. Uh, later apply for a master's in architecture. So it was all mapped out in my brain then, but of course I didn't tell him anything. Um, but I'm glad that I listened to him because it gave me a very solid basis in understanding behavior of, of buildings and, and truly the uh, technical aspect of uh, buildings. Uh, and then I applied for a master's degree 
at Harvard University. Uh, this time I applied to many, many universities <laughs> rather than one. Uh, and I got accepted to Harvard. I was super happy because I was the first Moroccan to ever be accepted at the School of Architecture. Um, and uh, yeah, and then I did my master's there and then I was asked to teach there. And this is what led me then to my current position as an associate professor at the University of Toronto. So that's in a way, in a nutshell, what led me to uh, to Toronto. Thank you for sharing that. So how did you come from working as a professor in Toronto to making an impact in Morocco? Uh, sure. Um, so what brought me to Morocco? Well, I have to say that uh, when I did my thesis at Harvard, my thesis advisor, Hashim Sarkis, who is now the, the dean of architecture at MIT, uh, is a, a Lebanese, and he highly encouraged me to pick a topic in my hometown. And, you know, like at a time where, where everyone was doing very fancy glass towers, you know, in New York and so forth. And he told me, no, no, you need to do something. You need to uh, really, you have, you know, in with the luxury to be at Harvard and to be given this opportunity to think about what could improve um, certain aspect in, in, in your hometown. And so I'm glad that I've listened to him. Uh, and I worked in on a topic in the Medina of Fez and that in a way kind of gave me the bug and uh, not just the bug, I would say made me realize that I'm in such a privileged position that I need to in a way bring back whichever expertise and skills and knowledge that I've gathered back to Morocco. And from then on, uh, I, you know, I, I got then a position at Harvard as the Agahan Fellow. Uh, and my research then was also focused on um, the postmodern period, I mean, post, sorry, colonial period uh, in Morocco. And so I've interviewed architects from that era, from the 60s and 70s that were in the late 80s and early 90s. And I'm very glad that I did that then. And, and that led me to discover the architectural history of my own country, a history that's recent, but that's never told, that was not even found in publications or books or whatsoever. And so I kind of felt that I had a responsibility, um, you know, kind of to not only do research in my home country, uh, but also to, to to act, to bring some type of, of, of contribution. So it kind of started with my thesis, with my fellowship at Harvard, with the Aga Khan uh, program there. And then when I was hired by Harvard, uh, I, you know, and again, I was working with um, Hashim Sarkis, uh, you know, and with his support, and I would never be able to thank him enough. Um, you know, like I connected with the, I mean, I technically wrote to all ministries in Morocco saying, hi, I'm, I'm teaching at Harvard and we have a fund, a, a research fund. Would you be willing to uh, work with us on specific topics that would be relevant to you? And there is only one ministry at the time we're sending faxes, you know, <laughs> already emails was in 2006 and um and then only one minister replied to me and it was the minister of tourism uh Dwiri. uh he replied immediately in in 24 hours and said yes we're interested uh and yes can you come next week and so we flew with the head of the agahan program hashim sarkis and we met him and we signed a 10-year contract to do research uh, and and at the time they were developing large resorts uh, in on on the beach, and I told them, listen, this is not what I believe in. I think we should be working in rural areas and 
Raja areas, which are the uh, arid regions of Morocco. And he fully trusted me. He said, yeah, sure, go ahead. Let's do it. <laughs> and so for 10 years, I had a research uh, collaboration. So uh, funds uh, to be able to lead research. I would say it's more applied research. And what I mean by that on ecotourism in this region. So we're developing master plans. We were developing uh, guidelines for the development of, of tourism, but also uh, ecology and hotel typologies that have very low impact. So we worked in the region, uh, I mean, all over Morocco. I mean, uh, in the region of Figuig and, and Bouarfa, in the region of the Ziz Valley, all the way to Merzouga, uh, on, on the Dra Valley, uh, and, and also in the region of Gelmim and Dakhla. Could you share with our listeners a little bit about the type of work that you do more specifically? So projects that lead right now? Of course. So in a way, I'm wearing two hats. Uh, One of my hats is as a professor uh, at the University of Toronto. So when I moved from Harvard to the University of Toronto as a professor, I carried with me this research, uh, let's say collaboration contract with the Ministry of Tourism of Morocco. Uh, and uh, so I continued under that umbrella. So I created a lab, a research lab on ecotourism in arid regions at the University of Toronto that's still there. Um, and, uh, you know, if, even though we finished the, the contract with uh, the Ministry of Tourism in Morocco, we've been working in Jordan and in Australia, so in other arid regions. So we kind of build an expertise and we were called in in these other countries to collaborate with either government of agencies or with NGOs. So uh, that that in we wanted to develop uh, different forms of ecotourism in these very sensitive uh, areas, right? So in a concrete way, what do we do in that lab with that one hat? Uh, we, uh, you know, like we work in a, in a very collaborative manner with either government agencies or with of NGOs that want to develop uh, ecotourism project in this region, since very often they don't know how to do it, want to do it in a sensitive manner. So we we, we work in this collaborative manner with uh, botanists, with ecologists, with sociologists, and with anthropologists to develop a project from beginning to end. So it goes from how do we deal with indigenous populations? How do we uh, integrate them? How do we have a social impact? How tourism doesn't have a predatory approach, but rather you know, like a, is highly beneficial and brings a positive uh, impact, both economically and sociologically. And then we develop also if there is an area that's ecologically sensitive, a protection plan about the fauna and flora. But we also work on the architecture, on how do we build with as little impact as possible and with local materials and with local skills. So this is one hat that I've been wearing. And another hat that I've been wearing, I mean, I'm in a professional school, the School of Architecture. And so in a way, if I, if I am to teach my students, I need also to be uh, practicing. And so I have an, an office based in Toronto, uh, but also in Fez, uh, Morocco, um, and where we actually work on a wide array of, of projects. I mean, we collaborate also with the Moroccan government. Um, and, uh, you know, going from the Ministry of, of Agriculture to the Ministry of, of Education. 
uh, again, working mostly in rural regions, but also in the field of historic pr preservation. I mean, I would say one of the I mean, projects that I'm most proud of is the rehabilitation of the Karawian Library uh, in Fez that was built uh, in the 8th century by um, uh, Fatima al-Fihriya, um, so, uh, who's a fantastic woman who left a huge uh, imprint in Morocco. And I'm so happy that myself, a woman uh, from Fez, was given the opportunity by the Minister of Tourism, a Minister of Tourism, to rehabilitate it. And actually what's quite interesting in the story is that this, it was a, a lady working in the Ministry of Tourism, uh, sorry, of Culture who contacted me saying that her niece had sent me once a message on Facebook asking for advice regarding her master's of architecture. And I always reply to mostly Moroccans that contact me for advice. And I sent her a piece of advice, what would be the best school for her, et cetera. So she talked about me to her aunt and her aunt contacted me saying, well, would you be interested to put together a proposal for the restoration of the Karawian Library, which is the oldest running library in, in the world today? Uh, and, and to be honest with you, what's really shocking to me was that this library uh, was not open to the public. So even if I was born and raised in Fez, I never could go inside because you needed to have you know, either a student card and you need to be registered in Fez to be have to have an access to it, uh, but it was not open to the public. So the first time that I visited the, the library was when I was asked to put together a proposal for it. Um, and, and so, you know, like it was such an adventure because we had no plans of the place. We found that a river was running uh, underneath the, the library. Uh, you know, it was truly, I was feeling I was an Indiana Jones, you know, finding out all these things about the building. And also I had a personal story with the library. My great-grandfather uh, came from the town of Shawan. That's why I'm called Shawni. Uh, and he came to Fez uh, at the turn of last century to study at the University of Karawin. And he used the library. Uh, and so, he, you know, in the family, we have stories of him, you know, where he was staying in the Madarsa. And then he was spending a lot of time in the library. And he became a lawyer and he stayed in Fez and married a woman called Aziza. That's why I'm called after her, my great-grandmother. So I had a personal story with this library. I had, I, I really wanted to not just restore it, but by to open it, to open it up, uh, you know, kind of to the public. So we created a cafe and an exhibition room that where uh, the general public could view certain rare manuscript, you know, as well. The kind of saddish uh, story was that when we finished the construction, um, the the library that was managed by the Ministry of Culture, but it was owned by the Ministry of the Habus uh, because it's next to the Karawin Mosque. And since then, uh, the, the programs that were meant for the public, which are there and ready, were never truly open to the public. Um, so anyway, it's my task now <laughs> to actually reach out to maybe the head of the Habus and ask him to actually make this happen. Because if you think about it, the um, each ministry has very specific tasks. So the Ministry of Culture are used to opening certain spaces that they manage to the public. But for the Ministry of the Habus, which manages mosques and, and uh, re uh, religious buildings, to have a cafe and an exhibition room is not something that they usually do, right? So this just, I think I wanted to sh share also this example to demonstrate that my job as an architect is not simply to provide a service to fix a building or to build a new building, but 
I believe that the role of an architect is also one of an activist. You need to take a civic role. You need to engage with educating sometimes your client with making sure that if you work on a public building, that that public building gives as much as possible back to the public and to the users that it serves. Sometimes you need to go beyond your simple role as just, let's say, giving a service as a drawing and following a construction site, but imagining new programs. Sometimes you have to push for them, fight for them. Um, and that leads me to the second project here in Morocco that's very dear to my heart um, is the uh, rehabilitation of the thermal bus station of Sidi Harazem. So um, Sidi Harazem is a thermal hot spring that's located 12 kilometers east of Fez. And um, it was used actually all the way back by the Romans. So its history as a hot spring has been, you know, very uh, integral to Moroccan uh, to Morocco's history. And then a Sufi saint in the 12th century was buried there called Sidi Harazem right by the hot spring. So it has this holy spirit uh, to it. And uh, right after Morocco's independence in 1959, the CDG, which is the state pension fund, commissioned a very large uh, tourism project for Moroccans. So uh, Sidi Harazem was the first, the largest leisure ground and tourist ground for Moroccans that was planned after Morocco's independence. So in many ways, it's architecture, highly modern, brutalist, but also that has a lot of local touches to it, local materials like copper and zelige, et cetera, is truly, you know, like a masterpiece. And once again, uh, this is an interesting story because I, you know, I've been going to Sidi Harazim since I was a child with my grandmother. And as I was studying architecture uh, abroad, I started to realize that this place was magical, but I didn't know who was the architect. I didn't know what was so special about it. So it's only after I got, uh, you know, like a grant from Harvard to, to, to study this architecture that I discovered that it's Jean-Francois Zévaco who built it, that it was in, indeed had a lot of innovations in it, etc. But year after year, we're seeing that it was falling apart and it was still owned by the CDG. And I managed to convince them that we should apply together to a Getty grant uh, for to get funding to study its restoration. We were very lucky to get it in 2017, and for um, th three years we led, you know, uh, you know, kind of a study on its 14.5 hectare site. So it's um, you know huge, uh, and, it, and then it was actually you know like incredible that this building in a way won because it's only a few buildings a year that win this award. Uh, and, you know, in the same, so Sidi Harazem was put in the same, you know, I would say level uh, for architecture as uh, buildings by Frank Lord Wright and Miss Van der Rohe and Le Corbusier. So in a sense, we have an architecture gem, a modern gem in Morocco, I would say similar in London to the Barbican, right? Uh, that has an amazing potential for tourism and for also, I mean, it's a space of, of, of memory for our identity, our modern identity in Morocco. And so, yeah, I've been working on, um, you know, kind of its conservation management plan. And now I'm lucky to say that we're starting its rehabilitation. And we, I also started a volunteer project in parallel to use the site, to activate the site through art and culture by inviting young Moroccan artists and designers uh, to have residencies on, on the site. So anyways, that's, you know, to make it a long story short. 
Firstly, I'd love to acknowledge you for the amazing work that you've done in Fez and congratulations for juggling all those different roles. I can imagine it must have been very difficult. Um, myself and my husband had launched a project in Fez a few years back and it was called Palm Media Maroc. Uh, there were a lot of frustrations around approvals and getting things done administratively wise and we had installed at the time solar panelled bus shelters in the city of Fez and these were widely used by you know everyday people going to and from work and going about their daily lives. Could you please share with us your experience in respect of the local point of view in terms of regulatory or state approvals or any contrary opinions that you had um, against your work and how you were able to overcome those difficulties? Uh, sure, uh, completely. I think this is a very relevant story. I think it's all the time. It's uh, constant. But I think uh, if you have strong beliefs in what you do, um, you know, like you, I mean, not always. I mean, I failed many times, but I was able to stand up on my feet and and start again or or move on sometimes very sadly. But I would say that, that the biggest challenge really has to do with the fact that sometimes it takes time, and this is with experience I've learned, is that sometimes it takes time for whichever stakeholders that you're dealing with to understand what you're trying to achieve. Because things has been in a certain way for a long time. Like, for example, the city uh, Harazm, which, by the way, if you come to Morocco, you have to visit it. It's the same way if you go to London, you visit the Barbican, where the same thing, you can come to Fez, you head to city Harazm, it's a magical place. Um, but for most people, it's a you know bunch of concrete. It's ugly. It's not Moroccan. Um, but uh, but we led an awareness campaign that really lasted three years for finally the local population stakeholders to understand its true value. And it's only when we got an article in the New York Times acknowledging the beauty of the place and the importance architecture importance of the place that I would say. Also, the uh, Moroccan media started to uh, to pick up on it. So sometimes I think it takes, there is a challenge, but with the experience I've learned that you have to take it step by step to slowly change mentalities. When I was younger, I used to be very disappointed quickly to say, well, this is, should be this way. Why don't you see it? Well, you know, and if you don't see it, then that's it, right? But with experience, I've learned that you have to maybe be more diplomatic and actually, you know, take uh, be humble in a certain way to accept that certain, you know, certain habits are very deeply ingrained, or sometimes it's just a lack of knowledge. Sometimes there's a lack of education. And if you take the time uh, to actually expand that knowledge and to share that knowledge through many ways. In Sidi Harazim, we did it through a workshop with uh, children, with youth, with local authorities, with, uh, um, you know, um, you know, like an informal market uh, of owners. So, um, we really shared the knowledge in this very humble way, in fun ways, using games and, you know, that we developed and, and, and it worked, you know, like at the end um, today, what seemed like a ridiculous idea at the beginning, I mean, Sidi Hrazim was probably going to be sold to a Chinese company and be turned, demolished and turned to a golf course, yet another one in Morocco. But I think with, um, you know, 
awareness building, uh, we were able to change people's opinion about the site, that they start to see it as an asset, as also part of their history. So yes, uh, challenges all the time, challenges regarding gender also. I was told many times that I should go take care of my family and do maybe some interior design. Um, and uh, those are always found. And I think one need, need to stand up to them and one need to answer, well, why don't you go take care, you know, uh, of, of your family yourself? <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I think those I would say in Morocco are the challenges, but one should not give up. It might take time. I know it takes patience. Uh, I have to acknowledge that it takes also, I'm lucky to have built an international expertise. And so that gives me also confidence that what I'm doing is beneficial for the greater good. Um, but one should never give up, I think, on their dream. Uh, you know, even if what I'm stating seems a bit cheesy, but that's that has been true for me, actually. Proven true. Yeah, I think um, a lot of the listeners like to hear the cheesy stuff because it's not said enough, actually. You know, you have to be persistent. You have to persevere um, that you won't get what you want easily. Obviously, we all have to work for it. Yeah, and then and it's okay to fail in certain aspects of it. It might not be exactly, uh, you know, how you had set it up. Your goals might not be fully accomplished, but you need... Uh, in a way to understand, to accept that if even if 10% of what I have dreamed of for them, for Sidi Hrazem and Qarawiyin uh, did happen, uh, it's already something, it's already an uh, impact, right? And I think, um, you know, acknowledging that one doesn't succeed fully, that that can fail and understand from those failures and, and to accept whichever small steps one accomplishes and be proud of them. I think that's also a message that I want to pass. Thank you so much for sharing that. Do you believe that there is more um, that can be done in the city of first in terms of infrastructure? And what is your vision for the city? Oh my God, that's a big question. That's a full, you know, half day lecture debate seminar. <laughs> uh, much to be done. I mean, I mean, Fez is the the largest medieval city in in the world. Fez has the largest pedestrian, the Medina of Fez, the largest uh, pedestrian network in in the world. Has uh, you know, I won't even count how many incredible, uh, you know, kind of landmarks it um, it has an architectural heritage, and I think. It's completely undervalued. Uh, even the areas, that the agricultural land around Fez are incredible. Um, you know, like it's it's it has amazing assets, but yet, uh, and I'm not even telling you about something that nobody sees, maybe not even you when you came to Fez, is the colonial heritage um, that exists and that's being demolished daily. And also the uh, post uh, colonial modern heritage. We have some incredible gems and including Sidi Harazin, right? So we are in a way erasing layers of our history that we cannot retrieve, right? I mean, we're, we're going to just become yet another city that looks like any other city with McDonald's and with pizza huts and shopping malls. And, 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 and I think I have to say that this is almost like a wake-up call. I hope to uh, everyone from Fez or everyone that has a tie to Fez that if we don't stand up ourselves for the preservation of our architecture and urban heritage, it's just going to be gone and it's going to be gone for good. Uh, and, and we're going to be losing something that's priceless. So, yes, there is a lot to be done. Uh, the detail of them to be 
uh, discussed in a follow-up uh, podcast, maybe. <laughs> uh, but yeah, a lot yet to be done in uh, on the field. Now, I'm just speaking about the field of architecture and urban design, um, just in the protection of heritage, just that we don't demolish what we already have. And then I think there is the, you know, one needs to, you know, kind of, create a cohesive plan, you know, for the development of public spaces. We don't have that many green spaces in Fez, you know, like itself. Uh, not enough parks, uh, not even a playground for children. Um, so I'm not even speaking about quality social housing, you know, like as well. I mean, those are problems that are endemic in the uh, entire Morocco. But the starting point is that we have a, such an amazing UNESCO World Heritage uh, City, and we have, you know, like uh, gems like Sidi Harazim that are amazing internationally recognized modern heritage that are now just sitting being abandoned. Um, so, yes, uh, we have a lot of, Fez has an immense potential that's yet to be developed. Aziza, would you mind just sharing with us, please, um, a difficulty that you encountered personally and how you were over to, you know, to jump over that hurdle? Sure. Uh, when I finished my degree at Harvard uh, as a master's of architecture, I wanted to come back to Morocco to practice in Morocco. And, and to do so, I had to get my degree approved since I was the first Moroccan to graduate from Harvard. And, and so it took me literally three years, three, four years of back and forth with administrations with so that I can prove that my degree is equivalent to the degree offered in, in Morocco. So not only did I have a bachelor in civil and structural engineering um, with an environmental minor, uh, but I also had the master's degree from Harvard, which is the number one ranked school in the world in architecture. But yet it took three, four years and I needed to get my degree, uh, you know, stamped. After I finished everything, he said, well, we don't know if your degree is real. The only way we would know it is that if you get it stamped by the Secretary of State. No uh, way. <laughs> which was Hillary Clinton at at the time. <laughs> so, uh, and Harvard helped me because, you know, they felt really offended. Uh, they said this thing never happened to them ever, that, it, that it's so com complicated. I mean, it's good that the Moroccan, you know, kind of uh, Ministry of Education wants to make sure that all degrees are up to the standard. But once you fulfill all of the paperwork, you should be able to get it. And I met so many other people in other professional fields that were there for like, five years, sometimes 10 years to get their degree approved so that they can officially work in Morocco. So I almost give up. Then my father actually uh, convinced me that I should, because I, I almost give up. I said, okay, I'm just not going to practice in Morocco. I mean, yeah. this is uh, ridiculous. Uh, and But after three years, I, I got it approved. So I'm a licensed architect in Morocco now for the past 11 years. <laughs> And I'm so proud of it. I think I'm more proud to be licensed in Morocco than to have gotten a degree from Harvard. Congratulations for uh, getting that approved. <laughs> Honestly, we're going to need an extra couple of hours here. <laughs> we can do it next time. No problem. We can do um, to be followed. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. To be continued. But I've got just one final question for you before we conclude. Sure. So if you were about to leave this earth, what would be the one single advice that you would give to the 16-year-old Aziza? Oh, goodness. That's such a hard... Uh, I would say uh, <laughs> love and cherish your parents. 
truly and your own uh, heritage, whatever that heritage means to, to you. For me, it's architecture. For others, it's music, culinary. Um, cherish it, develop it, uh, make it enter in the 21st um, century. Uh, you know, for me, preserving heritage is not fixing it in a, you know, in a way mummified form, but it's really to depart from it and to reinvent it uh, for the new generation. So that's, I would say, the best advice that I can give. And follow your dreams. Uh, don't accept no from anyone. If you want to do something, go for it until it gets done. And if it doesn't get done, stand up on your feet and start a new goal and start like a new project. Um, so I didn't give one piece of advice. I think those are several. So I'm cheating a little bit. I always ask this question and I find that People have, you know, a, a couple of pointers tagged along with the one main <laughs> main answer. But thank you so much for your time today. I'm sure that our listeners have enjoyed listening to this podcast and found great value. So thanks again for joining. And thank you for your uh, invitation and for the amazing uh, initiative. Thank you. I hope that you've all found such great value in today's episode. Aziza Shoni is a very inspirational woman and so much more can be discovered on her profile. If you go to her webpage at www.azizashoniprojects.com or her social media page at Aziza Shoni, you'll be able to see all the great work that she's achieved over the last decade. So please take a look. If you like what you hear, remember to subscribe, share and like. If you think that people will find value in this episode, then do spread the word. Thanks again for listening. I really appreciate your time. This is Talking Respect. <laughs>